his days are well and truly numbered. And I'm sure, Corrie, a lot more is going to come out about what actually went on behind the scenes of the Alistair Clarkson handover to Sam Mitchell that didn't happen and Jeff Kennett's role in all of that. And um, I'm determined to get to the bottom of it. The stink has continued even though he's left the northern climbs. Australia's climate policies have been ranked last out of 64 countries. Last. And we share the last four spots with Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia, Russia and Brazil. So, yoo-hoo, we're really leading the way. You just can't believe the people who bob up in this and they play these fascinating characters but this is an editor who loves his journalists and allows them to get away with some ridiculous things but it's all about the journalism and boy oh boy some of the words are beautiful I don't know I'm just glowing in my greatness there glowing or gloating Kari <laughs> <laughs> don't shoot the messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Cory Perkin everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is our 196th episode, Caroline Wilson, over the seas in Amsterdam. Hello, my friend. Can you believe we're coming up to the two-ton? I can't believe it. Um, I'm sad we're going to be celebrating from such a long way away, Corrie, but yet again, another eventful week in the world that we live in, eventful in the southern and northern hemispheres. In fact, it's been a week where both hemispheres have really come together in a way, hasn't it? Not, well, not always in a good way. Well, not always in a good way because it seems half the population of the Western world, the leaders at least, are, are hating our Prime Minister Scott Morrison because of his lack of chi- climate change policy and insight and foresight. But um, And the French aren't very happy with us either, Caro, so just as well you went to Paris a couple of weeks ago and not this week because you might have been kicked. No, <laughs> actually there were everywhere you go... Um, well, not that I've been to that many places, but there are a lot of comments about, oh, you're from Australia, you escaped, oh, you're out. How did you get here? It's, there's a, a fascination, a fascination with Australians, where we're from, how we've found it, has, has it been as bad as they've all heard? And you do get a bit defensive. It's like, well, you know, you've been locked down too, you know, leave me alone. In fact, things are um, things have got a bit dire in Amsterdam. Well, not dire in Amsterdam this week, but um, they've um, brought back masks, which had disappeared, really, from everything but public transport. Now they're back at supermarkets and all indoor shops and everything like that when you walk into restaurants. Obviously, the QR codes are always getting checked, but the mask thing is a bit alarming, and the um, the Prime Minister's got a... is making a big statement on Fridays, so let's just hope there's not another lockdown coming. Well, it's uh, it's winter coming in the arriving very soon in the Northern Hemisphere and just listening to our friend Boris in the UK over the past week talk about this, it is slightly concerning that you're all coming into winter and COVID could be back with some variation. But Carol, as you said, we've got so much to discuss. We've all been on a mini break to Budapest. I leave today for a mini break to Port Ferry. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Alert the media. I mean, Budapest would be nice, Caro, but as you know, this is my fifth attempt. Potties are so sick of me. I I mean, I ran into a potty a couple of weeks ago and she said, any chance you're getting to Port Ferry? I went, I know, I know, it's a really (laughs) long story. But Caro, I just wanted to um, flip on to my, uh, I'm going away for four days on my mini break and I just want to tell you what the weather is like according to Jane Bunn in Port Ferry for the next four days. It's going to be 14, 13, 12 and 12. So 
the summer shorts, the sun hat, everything I packed is now out of the little suitcase. <laughs> it actually sounds like it's uh, the sort of weather we're getting in Amsterdam. Um, well, Corrie, I just hope it's not an anti-climax after so many attempts. I myself did something the other day that I wanted to do around the week that COVID set in and I finally got to do it. I'll talk about that in BSF. But um, I'm so glad you're going to Port Ferry. I'm thinking whiskies by warm fires after oh, ruggedly, Karen. blizzardly games of golf. I'm so, but I'm so bored with that idea. Someone said, oh, you can snuggle up with a good book in front of the fire. I've been doing that for four months. Come on. <laughs> anyway, Carol, you, you posted some terrific photos, uh, or Miss Jane did at least, on our Instagram account of you travelling in Belgium last week. There has been a bit of love for you with those photographs, gorgeous photos. Throops on Instagram said, Carol, you look like a teenager. Oh, that's that beautiful um, favourite musician, Rebecca Bernard. She's um, a dear, dear friend and podcast listener, so sending love to you, Beck. And Jane Luminous, who's one of our um, lovely potties from long ago, still with us, she said, really enjoying Table Manners too, Corey. The episode with Tom Jones is great. I haven't heard the episode with Tom Jones, but I always had a bit of a thing for Tom Jones, so that sounds good. And Gina Ferguson, our friend, the amazing photographer, has also chimed in on Instagram saying, yet another great show, girls, listening in the car on the Hume Highway on my way back from the nation's capital. So it's good to hear that people are travelling around again, Victorians are on the road and uh, listening to the podcast to say trouble. No, that's absolutely wonderful and I'm so glad and um, I just hope that people are still enjoying us even though it is a, well, it's not a struggle. I'm loving catching up with you every week but logistically, when I say logistically, I mean technology-wise, it's always a bit of a challenge for you and I and Miss Jane does her best but um, rest assured we will be back in the studio together one day and for now it's just as nice being able to speak remotely, Corrie. So tell, tell me about your life for a moment. Well, How's well, Panda? Well, Panda's, Panda's um, very well behaved. She She's sitting on command. I took her to the beach for the first time yesterday, her first beach visit, which was her third time on a lead. That's going okay. Somebody gave me a really good tip, Carol, when you have a puppy and puppies hate going on the lead for the first time. Have your friend or partner walk in front of you. That encourages the puppy to move forward rather than just sit still on the same spot, which is a problem we were having there for a while. Um, we're all pretty good here. Looking forward to the mini break. But tell us about life in Amsterdam and tell us about the girls' weekend away in Budapest. Well, it was rather spur of the moment. I know it sounds like I'm gallivanting around a bit. I really haven't been, but um, it was just a two-day girls weekend yeah it was wonderful i'd never been to budapest as you know it's been a bucket list item for me they're just an opportunity came up rose and two of her dear friends sarah and mill two old school friends who happily both live in amsterdam were very keen to come along so i managed to tag along with three beautiful 30 somethings and they made me feel very welcome i've got to say those girls, they really haven't it sorted out, Corrie, compared to what we were like, I think, at the age of 30, 31. Maybe I'm wrong, but their um, take on things. And, you know, they talk about, you know, stuff like we do, like, you know, ovens and how high you should fill your kettle and all this sort of stuff. But some of their thoughts on work, on the workplace, 
on society. I don't know about their own plans, their own living plans, where they want to live, what their plans are for the future. I'm just taken away by them. But anyway, Budapest, you know, a, a beautiful city. It did not disappoint. Two days was not enough, but it was also a wonderful, wonderful taste of everything I'd imagined. We did one of those beautiful thermal um thermal pools that they have there which are just absolutely incredible to look at both indoor and outdoor we did an incredible two hour walking tour with Andor who gave us both a political social and cultural insight and historical insight into Budapest where not one building can be higher than 96 metres as decreed in 1896 believe it or not um, lots of stories about um, Hungary how big it used to be you know when it included parts of Austria and Transylvania and etc and the complicated and extremely problematic relationship with the Russians really funny going on a walking tour with people from Russia people from Wuhan Wuhan believe it or not People from Austria, people from Sweden, people from Australia, absolutely fascinating. Some of it was very sad. And, oh, Corrie, the buildings, the grand cafes, the beautiful squares uh, on a beautiful sunny day, the market, the paprika, the goulash. It was just a – it was a, a visual feast, um, certainly an edible feast. Everybody, by the third meal, they all said, no, no more Hungarian Jewish restaurants. I cannot eat another – potato dumpling or whatever it was anyway it was it was absolutely beautiful Corrie so it was most exciting and um, we were back by Sunday afternoon. So Mike the, the question is sitting on my shoulder now is the people from Wuhan I would have had 20 quick questions with them. Well the guide asked um, a lot of us where we were from and he asked these two girls where are you from and they said China and he said oh what part of China and they just started giggling <laughs> started laughing and giggling and they say the COVID part I, I'm not doing a very good Chinese accent in fact I won't even try and do a Chinese accent they said the COVID part and everybody anyone within earshot turned around in alarm and someone said Wuhan and they said yes and then they just started giggling hysterically again I look I just thought the poor things they've had enough questions we didn't we did, we didn't ask them anything else Anyway, a, a, a really good local tip, when yeah. and we did it in Cornwall, when you go to a new city, the two-hour or two-and-a-half or one-hour free walking tour, which always ends up being not free because you obviously, you know, tip them at the end. Rose's friend Mill had come here as a 19-year-old, my friend Mill, and had felt bad for all the ensuing years, 11 years, that she never tipped the guide. So she was determined to tip him double at the end. <laughs> The end of this trip. Anyway, it was a it was fascinating. It was just a, a wonderful, wonderful city, and I can highly recommend the Hotel Collect, a small, beautiful hotel where we stayed on the Pest side. Of course, Budapest used to be three cities. Now it's two, Buda and Pest. We crossed the bridge. Oh, look, it was wonderful. And did you train there or fly? We flew. We flew, which was um, sadly found ourselves, or Rose and I did. Um, squashed between a, a boys weekend on our easy jet flight um but it's about an hour and three quarters from amsterdam and then we flew back probably the only flight i'll take while i'm here because train travel is probably more enjoyable but it was too far to catch the train and we only had a weekend so and there you, you are but um you left sunday sunday to make the girls weekend she stayed at home with the dads did she 
She stayed at home with her dad. Um, Brendan babysat on Friday, and I think he babysat on Saturday night just for a couple of hours. And she was a very good little girl, and it was absolutely wonderful to come back and see her again. Two days. Two, look, two days is never enough, but it's also enough to see a city. And, and um, I think the beauty of being over here for this time, even though it has obviously has its challenges, is that everything is so close, Corrie. And it's not as cheap or as easy or accessible as you would think, but it certainly is a lot easier to go for a weekend in Budapest from Amsterdam than it is from Melbourne, let's face it. The, other, the only other news to report here, apart from slight COVID threat creeping in is that the Christmas decorations are coming up and our local square has got all the lights. I mean, there are always fairy lights here everywhere, but, um, and there's, they have a big sort of white night thing in November, which is huge. And everyone gets very excited about that. And we had a big Guy Fawkes night the other night. I don't know if it's clearly, it's not their Guy Fawkes night. <laughs> there's another reason for fireworks, but there were fireworks nonetheless. And um, the, the Christmas decorations are spectacular absolutely beautiful the different lights and everything in dutch so all good over here well i think there's something too about christmas lights in a winter landscape particularly snow because the the lights just kind of bounce off the snow but also the air and the mist just creates that beautiful it's like a blanket on a city and you have the wonderful lights and it just must be magical, absolutely magical. Do you remember when our friend Kate uh, actually went to Lapland and went to the land of Father Christmas? She oh, and I sleigh. I've always wanted to go to Lapland. I remember, actually, I remember the late great Danny Frawley telling me about a family holiday he went to the Christmas town, and he said it was one of the most wonderful places he'd ever visited, and his girls absolutely loved it too. Now, I'd, I would love to do that. I wish I had time to go to Scandinavia, but sadly, that is going to have to be next time. Um, the other, obviously, um, the, the talk here, the, the Glasgow conference has been absolutely front of mind for and and i've spoken to you about how much the netherlands is doing in terms of trying to be carbon neutral and get towards zero emissions etc cetera, etc cetera, and what they're doing with gas um although there is a feeling within the population here that their leader isn't doing enough a bit like australia but nothing like the backlash that scott morrison obviously received and even in the Netherlands and on, you know, watching the BBC News, etc. Gee, it's getting a bad rap. Oh, well, it's interesting to hear that, Caro, that it's actually uh, the stink has continued even though he's left the northern climes. We woke up this morning, Caro, here in Australia to the news. I'm just quoting the New Daily here. Australia's climate policies have been ranked last out of 64 countries, last and we share the last four spots with Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia, Russia and Brazil. So, yoo-hoo, we're really leading the way. Caro, the mood is really tangible here, I think, anyway, just in grass, not only grassroots people I talk to, but also from, from corporate leaders like Tw- Twiggy Forrest, who was in Glasgow, actually, uh, right through to uh, big businesses, small businesses. My friends in retail are talking about just little things like boxes, uh, which products come in, 
uh, just general waste of running a small business? What can they do? And, of course, at the grassroots level with all of us in the community, so many friends, so many people over the last couple of weeks have been talking about this issue. It does make me wonder whether it's going to be a big election issue in 2022 when we have the next federal election. You'd, you'd think so and you'd hope so, but, gosh, you're really wanting Labor to, to come out all guns blazing with some fantastic alternative policy. It is interesting that I know um, they didn't sign up to the pledge regarding um, phasing out coal-fired power, but then neither did America, India or China. And so it's not as though Australia's alone there. I mean, I do think, I know Barack Obama made that passionate and wonderful speech, although, of course, Fox News had a crack at him for confusing Scotland with Ireland, I think, because he referred to it as the Emerald Isle. But anyway, that's, it was an incredibly impressive speech, I thought. And um, and yet America hasn't exactly come to the party in all those areas. I know they are doing a lot. But, but Corrie, I, I find it quite amusing the way now suddenly the Australian government is behind electric cars. Remember when Scott Morrison said that if um, we were going to kill the weekend, that you know there'd be no more utes and there'd be no more trailers. They have rather changed their tune there, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And he's also suggesting that he never said that he was anti-electric cars, which is funny because he's on tape. It's very interesting, the Prime Minister, Caro. He is doing a bit of, uh, it's like the Macron... Um, There's a lot of spin going on and I know certainly having read some really interesting stuff over the weekend, I just immersed myself in it. Laura Tingle in the Fin Review and Catherine Murphy and Herald's very various Herald Sun and Australian journalists and commentators. I mean, even, even they are critical of the Liberal government at the moment and Scott Morrison in particular for constant backflips and spin. It's just a it's just a really interesting time leading into the election. His popularity is the lowest since the bushfires at the start of last year. But um, look, you know, they're 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 bringing out a new policy this week. Uh, they say, you know, the, the Josh Frydenberg and everybody seems very um, determined to turn this around. The economy is booming, they tell us, although retail is down 4% for the September quarter, which is actually really alarming. 4% doesn't sound a lot, but it is. Um, there's a shortage of staff. Everybody, Cara, from your little cafe through to Charlie, my son-in-law's factory in Ballarat, they just cannot get staff. I don't know where everybody's gone. Um, we know there's this new... Uh, mode or this new zeitgeist that's sweeping the world called the Great Resignation, which is fascinating. We should talk about that sometime. But um, nobody can get any staff. The worry, Carol, here in Australia is uh, couriers and freight. We just can't ship enough products around to... Carol, I was in Kmart the other day. There are shelves upon shelves with no product on them. Supermarkets. I've never seen it in my lifetime. Supermarkets with no product, certain products on them. And um, business owners are pulling their hair out because they just can't move stuff around the country. So I think that's a bit of a concern going into Christmas. Well, do you, do you think people are just sort of rousing themselves out of um, the sort of COVID-induced slumber? I must say, if if climate change does become an election issue, that would be a welcome change because it certainly hasn't ever been before, has it? It hasn't been really close to being an election issue, maybe in certain targeted seats, but not in terms of any meaningful 
you know, effect on um, the electorate. So I really, really hope it is. And um, that all does sound a little bit grim, but I guess I sort of hope that um, everyone rallies and everything moves back to normal again soon. Does sound does sound a bit grim, I must say, Corrie, though. Yeah, well, it, uh, it, 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 it it's concerning. I, I mean, I don't mean to say that we're all feeling miserable and terrible. It's just so wonderful to be out of lockdown, I can't tell you. You know, last week, Caro, when I talked about heading to uh, regional Victoria, um, I, I have not stopped thinking about those three days away. Isn't it crazy? And I can't wait to get in the car and go. There's a real sense of people just wanting to break out. But... Um, but when uh, when news comes through that your leader on the world stage is probably one of the most unpopular leaders in the Western world, it does make you kind of sit up. Well, I know we, we sort of do laugh, rather think of ourselves as this beautiful, large, you know, island full of, you know, the world's most beautiful coastline and green. And I mean, I know we've got a massive desert in the middle, but um, you would think that if we can't lead the world, in this area, then um, then something's really, really wrong. But who knows? Maybe um, maybe the government will have to change their tune. They've already made a few changes. Well, I don't believe they're denials. So of course, he was totally anti-electric cars not so long ago. But um, and to sign up to the no coal would be such a major move. Obviously, they're not prepared to do it. So uh, quite a few other big countries. But yeah, pretty depressing that we're in the bottom six. Corey, I think we need a drink. Oh yes, please. And here comes Miss Jane with the trolley and Miles behind her with lots of stuff for us to discuss today. Thank you to Prince Wine Store. Miles, it's great to have you on board. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's a bit wet here, but uh, all good. Well, Miles, I'm going to take over here because um, it might be spring and Melbourne where you are, but I'm in Europe and it's autumn and you have some new French arrivals, which I'm fascinated to hear about. Um, I haven't yet. Yeah, I've got a couple of new new arrivals that we, so we import some wine at Prince Wine, so we import a bunch of wine. And I picked out a couple of two reds. So I've got a, a Beaujolais from a producer called Lucien Lardy and a really fantastic Cote de Rhone from another producer called uh, Domaine Fonte de Dune. Um, to, well, well, let's start off with the Beaujolais, which is obviously a lighter wine. Do they still, you know, does it still arrive every year the way it used to in France, the Beaujolais, this special season that everyone used to celebrate? Does that still happen? Yeah, so they still do the Beaujolais, which is the Beaujolais Nouveau, um, which is, the, you know, bottled yep. within whatever it is, a few months, I think, and sent over. I, I only know of one producer that's still sort of, does that, which is George Dubois, which is a really big producer, but I'm sure a bunch of them do it. And I think locally it's still popular. We just don't see as much of it here because obviously it has to get imported. So it's, I think, less of a thing because it's not the fun surrounding the end of the harvest and the freshly bottled juice and all that sort of stuff. It is around, definitely, yeah, for sure. So the one we're talking about today, would you um, suggest we buy it and drink it fairly quickly? Yeah, well, look, the, the, I chose this one because it's the, he, we've got three wines that he can that come in there's a couple of single village wines and this is his blend of a couple of village and it's called the Beaujolais villages funnily enough but it's the freshest <laughs> juicy really you know if you've had Beaujolais before it's very similar to Pinot it has a little bit of that earthiness to it a little bit of that kind of fresh turned earth but that lovely spicy clove and lovely sort of red fruit very juicy very easy drinking $30 and it's uh, like absolutely fantastic. Just a really great 
open it up, drink it now. Don't put it in your cellar or anything like that. It's just ready to go. Oh, it sounds wonderful. And I'm speaking to you guys at a time when I feel like a glass of red. It's a bit early for everyone over there. <laughs> Miles, tell me about the, um, tell us about the Cote de Rhone. Right, the Cote de Rhone. So, well, actually both of these producers have access to really old vines, which is some really sort of great fruit. So that first one comes off like 70-year-old vines. And this Cote de Rhone, this producer owns some really crazy 100, 110-year-old vines as well in the Rhone. Now, the Rhone's a pretty big region. Um, there's a lot of sort of quality and sort of price point diversity there. Um, this is probably somewhere in the middle as far as price point, but quality is right up there. They get great old vine Grenache, 100-year-old vine Grenache, blend it with some varietals like Cunoir, a bit of Syrah, uh, some Cinto and things like that. And it's a really lovely, heady, quite rich in style, but still not sort of heavy in style, but quite rich. Lovely, lots of sweet fruit, that spice that you get from the Rhone, that lovely sort of fresh cracked peppercorn and that lovely sort of um, white pepper spice that you get with these Grenache-based wines. They don't use any oak at all. So again, it's a really pure, fruited sort of style. There's no oak or anything to sort of encumber the wine really wonderful and fresh and very juicy, very plush. Um, so really, we, we've had this wine for a couple of years now. This is probably the best vintage we've seen from them. It's, it's really fantastic. And um, did you say is it a mid-range in price? So obviously more than the Beaujolais. Yeah, so it's, it's $36 a bottle. So a little more expensive than, than the Beaujolais. Then, of course, your listeners get your 10% off um, at checkout with the code MEFFS as well. So you'll get a little bit of a discount on that. But really for the money, really awesome value. It's a pretty pretty serious wine. Um, I think you'd impress a lot of people with it at a, at a dinner or out and about. It's really great. They're fabulous recommendations, Miles. They will be on our show notes. Just remember to get in touch if you want to buy some of their beautiful wines at princewinestore.com.au. And as Miles said, the promo code is capital M-E-S-S, short for messenger, for a special listener discount. Miles, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Miles. Thank you, Prince Wine Store. And Caro, on to Crush of the Week, which of course each week is brought to us by Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas. Love Red Energy. I'm a customer, so get on board, potties. Caro, you have a crush. I do, Corrie, and it's another dead person, but he's only just died, so it's Crush by way of a ballet to Dean Stockwell, one of my favourite actors and one of Hollywood's more fascinating stories. He died a few days ago in New Mexico of natural causes, did Dean Stockwell. He was in his 80s, early 80s, I think. Um, Dean Stockwell was a child star, Corrie, in some wonderful movies, including Gentleman's Agreement and The Boy with Green Hair, a Joseph Losey sort of parable about racism, I guess, and also a, a bit of an anti-war film. He then went on to be a, a sort of film and TV star in the 50s and 60s. And then, of course, um, became very disillusioned with Hollywood, disappeared for a long time. I think he was selling real estate and um, completely out of the entertainment industry for some time before he came back with an absolute bang in that wonderful film, Paris, Texas, one of my favourite films of all time um, with Harry Dean Stanton and, of course, Natasha Kinski and Dean Stockwell. He um, then um, did the famous lip-syncing scene, if you remember, in Blue Velvet. He was a creepy, creepy star of that film. So in between time, he was sort of friends with guys like... Um, 
Neil Young. He designed one of his album covers. And yet he also starred with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly in um, Anchors Away. And he was in Kim with Errol Flynn. I mean, just an extraordinary story. Um, won a, won a um, Best Actor Prize at Cannes for Long Day's Journey and Tonight. But to come back after all those years out of the movie industry, and then, of course, um, I think he, he was also famous for the role he played in Married to the Mob. He was in The Player, which was, which was you know, one of my favourite films also. And then that sci-fi TV series, Quantum Leap, with Scott Bakula. So, Vale, Dean Stockwell, just a wonderful story and a wonderful actor. And really, um, those sort of chiselled features toward the end of his life there, he was such he had such a remarkable face for the camera. The camera loved him. You know how they say that about Meryl Streep? I often think about yes. Stockwell, the camera loved him. Well, it's amazing that he disappeared for so long and then it was, I think, only because Harry Dean Stanton suggested him to Vim Vendors for um, the Paris, Texas film that he came back. Anyway, we realised how good he was and he did a wonderful job. Caro, on to BSF. Uh, you have a book and I just have to say on the outset, I think you think that I've finished this book. I haven't. I started reading it before my Sarah Winman interview a couple of months ago. I'm halfway through and it is in my bag to go to Port Ferry. So that's my way of saying no spoilers, please. Oh, well, that's yeah, that's going to be difficult. Okay, well, I won't I won't do any spoilers alert for another wonderful Sarah Winman novel. Uh, of course, we've talked ad nauseum about still life, but When God Was a Rabbit is an early, um, in fact, it's her debut novel, um, and she wrote it in 2011. It's slightly biographical. I've got Anna from the op shop to um, thank me. She gave it to me as a going away present, I pretty sure it was Anna who gave it to me when I came away to Amsterdam. I've read all the books both you Anna, you and Anna gave me. It's, as I said, a coming-of-age of story. Um, it's a love story between a brother and a sister, um, not in any sort of um, inappropriate way, just about a relationship between a brother and a sister. Growing up in, in, a, in a sort of, I, I guess, some sort of English county town, village, whatever. They move to Cornwall um, in their teenage years. They both have some terrible things happen to them, but some very, very, very funny things happen to them. Their parents are two absolutely fascinating characters. Um, and something quite terrible happens to Eleanor, Ellie, the main character, when she's very young, which, in, which involves her next-door neighbour, an elderly Jewish gentleman. I won't go into details, but um, it rather sort of punctuates her life, I guess, and her brother's life too. Um, oh, Corrie, so many things happen in this book as these two navigate their way through the world, this, these wonderful two characters. Um, she was given a rabbit as a young girl and she called it God. That's why the title of the book is When God Was a Rabbit. But um, big historic events are a backdrop this story which involved the two main characters and the nativity scene at Ellie's school concert play when she is a young girl involving her and her best friend and an unfortunate young boy who plays baby Jesus I've got to say is one of the funniest things I have read in a book for a long time I lent it to Rose afterwards and we both absolutely chortled so I'm just loving Sarah Winman I've now read two of her books and I'm going to keep going um 
She's a wonderful writer. She I want to read. I want to read Tin Man next. I think that looks yeah, fantastic. Yeah, well, um, well I, I have Tin Man and then I have the other one, The Name Escapes Me Here. So when you get home, you can borrow it over summer, take it down the beach, take them down the beach. Carol, it sounds like it has that same lovely sense of humour that Sarah displayed in our favourite book, Still Life. Yeah, um, well, she certainly moved on um, from when God was a rabbit to still life. And there are moments you go, oh, really? Is this going to happen now? But overall, could not put it down. Absolute page turner. Um, I know sometimes you probably think I'm not discerning enough about books. I mean, I talked about Two Women in Rome last week, which was a good book, but this is Streets Ahead, and I really loved it. That's great. So uh, I'm interested... um I'm actually really jealous that you've seen French Dispatch. I was hoping that it would be on here in Australia before you got to see it. Tell me about it. Screen. Oh, well, I actually thought um, you you were going to see it last week, but is it not on in Australia yet? No, I was going to see Respect. Uh-huh. Oh, yes, the Aretha Franklin film. Well, yeah. Corrie... Look, this film did not disappoint, and it is a bit like Port Ferry. The ads came up at our local cinema, as you know, in February 2020. This film starred everyone we love, from Tilda Swinton to Bill Murray to Timothy Chalamet. It has got. When I say it stars everyone, I mean it really does star everyone. Even Henry Winkler's in it. Fonzie. We we were racking our brains to work out who one of these characters were, was. Anyway, don't jump, don't jump the shark, Carol. Don't jump the shark. Corey, as you know, I've been dying to see this film, okay, so for nearly two years. We finally, Rose says to me and Brendan, I've booked tickets. Um, you've got a lovely little sort of um, sort of Art Deco Art cinema Deco. near where you're living in Amsterdam. We'll meet there. I booked for one fifteen. We arrive at the cinema about five past one, really close to where we live. They look at us blankly. No, the cinema's called the Rialto. You've booked to the new Rialto, which is outside the Amsterdam ring. At, um, at, at, at a university. So we, we it's a 15-minute bike ride from where we are. Amsterdam is not that big. We decide we'll try and make it. We ride like stink to this cinema. We walk into a university. It was very bizarre. The w- woman at the ticket counter said... Um, Look, it's already been it's been going for five minutes. I said, I don't care. I want to talk about I didn't say I want to talk about it on the podcast. She couldn't have cared less. But I I was thinking that we're going to go up. Then the other um, woman at the cinema desk said, actually, they've stopped the film because nobody turned up to the showing. But we'll take you up and see if they'll put it on again. There are two blokes sitting in this cinema. I don't know if they were students with laptops watching a short documentary about hallucinogenic drugs. <laughs> Look, it was they gave they paid tribute at the end of the film to all these different LSD research research films, documentaries, etc. They finally the woman convinced them to turn off that film. Somehow, someone turned on the film and me, excuse me, myself, my husband and my daughter sat in this cinema, three people. (laughs) I was so determined to see this bloody film. Anyway, it did not disappoint. It's a tribute really to journalism, although some people disagree with that. You would love it. The French Dispatch is sort of a spin-off of a Kansas newspaper um, where the fictional editor was born and his father owned the, owns a newspaper in Kansas. It's in an outpost of a, a French village, really, 
Um, it's a mythical village, but it was all filmed in France, apparently. Tilda Swinton steals the show, but she is not the only one. So does Owen Wilson. I mean, there are so many. So so does Frances McDormand. There are so many wonderful performances. Um, I've just been reading, Mum let me just before I went away, um, The Years with Ross, which is about Harold Ross, of course, the famous editor of The New Yorker. And they pay tribute to Harold Ross at the end of the film. The Bill Murray character, he's in only a few scenes and apparently he filmed his scenes over two days. But it's basically four or five, stories short stories within a film and i absolutely loved it some of the journos are based on real journos the stories are fascinating it's funny there's a bit of animation it's a visual feast it'll definitely win awards for cinematography and you have to go and see it so that's the french dispatch tell me your thoughts about owen wilson the character he plays is actually based on a real-life New Yorker reporter. He is the cycling reporter. He cycles around town writing these black, bleak stories. I mean, all the journos, are, they're sort of charlatans in a way, but they're brilliant writers. Yeah, there's something about Owen Wilson because his career has, or our, I guess our expectations of how his career might develop and go. After wedding crashes and those kind of laugh-out-loud comedies, and then Woody Allen put him in a couple of things and he was absolutely terrific. It's been an interesting journey for Owen Wilson. Yeah, well, he's had some mental health issues and he's had some stuff really go seriously wrong in his personal life. But, um, look, he, he's in it for a while. Benicio Del Toro is brilliant in it, as is Adrian Brody, who we were rather obsessed with, me and Rose, because, of course, he's Hungarian. And um, Jeffrey Wright is amazing. Um, Sasha Ronan appears. Cory. You wouldn't believe the people. Elizabeth Moss plays, um, I suppose, sort of the PA assistant to the editor. Christoph Waltz, of course, who has been in... Um, oh, look, he's... He was in Inglorious Bastards, one film that I absolutely loved. You know, Edward Norton. You just can't believe the people who bob up in this. And they play these fascinating characters. But this is an editor who loves his journalists and allows them to get away with some ridiculous things. But it's all about the journalism. And boy, oh boy, some of the words are beautiful. And Angelica Houston actually um, narrates the film. It sounds great and it's going to be on my list. Hopefully it'll be here before summer or before too long. So, Caro, on to food and I have a recipe. I've cooked this now half a dozen times and the reason I didn't, I haven't mentioned it in the past is I have a feeling that we've done it, but you will tell me. I can't see it in Miss Jane's show notes, so I'm just going to go for it and apologies if everybody has written this down before. This appeared in Good Weekend. You know how we love Neil Perry's recipes in Good Weekend magazine in the age on Saturday. This one um, is called linguine with spicy tuna, olives and capers. Is it ringing any bells? One thing, Potties, about the quantities, I actually upped all of the quantities here, um, just so you know. So this uh, is for, it says serves four. Um, olive oil, six anchovies, three cloves of garlic. Well, I kept to that and then... Salted baby capers, you know how much I love capers, so I actually put in a couple of tablespoons, it says one here. Black olives, chilli flakes, uh, a can of tuna in oil, dried linguine, and um, then you put flat leaf parsley on the top with um, lemon juice and ground pepper. <clears throat> and essentially, Caro, just in your heated olive oil saucepan on a low heat, you put in the anchovies and garlic and cook them up until the anchovies are soft. You add the capers, olives, chilli, 
bit of salt, break up the tuna, fold it all through, cook your pasta, drain the pasta. I kept a little bit of the pasta water, as Stanley Tucci tells us to do, popped it back in the pan so it was a bit more moist. And then I did put um, grated um, red parmigiana on the top of it. This is a really terrific one for midweek. Takes all up about 10 or 15 minutes. It looks great. Um, I added some chopped up rocket just because we wanted a bit of vegetables through it. And it's a winner of a dish. It's an absolute winner. And I made it on the weekend. Usually it's a can of tuna, Serena tuna out of the pantry. But I made it on the weekend. I had a couple of salmon fillets that had been there. You know, they needed to be cooked that day. So I just uh, cut them up and popped is the substitute. It was absolutely delicious. So that's Neil Perry's linguine with spicy tuna, olives and peppers. Corrie, I, I, and I'm not going to rain on your parade, but this is one of my, it is, it does completely ring a bell, one of my favourite recipes. I've cooked it several times for the Amsterdam gang. Um, my son Ned loves it. I've cooked it. I've even cooked it for Clem, and even she gives it the thumbs up, you know, which is, you know, a tough, tough school with Clem. I think this is one of the best recipes ever, and I don't reckon you need the Parmigiana Reggiano because it's so tasty anyway. Well, I know. We, we just, um, because every time I'm in Brunswick, I go to Mediterranean wholesalers with Florence and Pram. So I have about $129 worth of Parmigiana Reggiano in my fridge. So we use it up on weekend. <laughs> Hey, um, before we move on to, that's a great recipe, and you're right about the, it definitely needs a pasta water. Before we move on from BSF, just back to S for screen at the moment. Johan, you know, our friend from Sweden, from Stockholm, who goes home very soon, has been in touch, Corrie. He's very concerned um, about me saying that he was poo-pooing the Sandham murders. Um, apparently, some of his Swedish friends have told him He's been unjust. He should give it a chance after seeing only two episodes. He sends his regards to you, and he sent me some beautiful photos of Sandam Corrie. So even the Swedes are getting stuck into Johan for not being nice about the Sandham murders. Well, I'm, I'm absolutely ecstatic that there's a small Swedish cohort that are listening to Don't Shoot the Messenger. <laughs> I, you will be pleased to know that after... Uh, what is it, eight series or something, we watched the last, the final episode on the weekend. Oh, my lordy, the rage. And so, anyway, I'm not sure whether this this um, series, how long the Sunhar murders has, well, certainly in our world. But anyway, look, it got us through a few COVID nights, Cara. Um, thank you uh, to our BSF presenters, Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro. A leader in renewable energy is in a time you called Red Energy on 131. Eight zero six, Carol. I'm going to keep the microphone for a minute because I am very grumpy, and I just want to say from the outset, it's not necessarily a crack at Scott Morrison again, but it is actually in defence of journalists. Scott Morrison was quite rude and dismissive with the small band of journalists who accompanied him to um, Glasgow, a couple of whom. Uh, including the chap from the ABC, did a fantastic job in essentially door-stopping Emmanuel Macron at the conference um, to say, you know, we are Australian journalists, do you have anything to say? And this is when the French president uh, made the, you know, said the famous words, you know, the kind of one of us is lying sort of thing and it's not me. Um, yeah. that, that received um, absolute 
um, contempt, as you can imagine, and just enormous from the Prime Minister's media office. So when the Prime Minister was informed that this is what had happened, he was so annoyed at his own press conference for a short time later, and he accused the journalists of having selfies with the French president. You know, he said, I've seen him several times, Scott Morrison. You guys have seen him. You were getting selfies with him. And when one of the journalists pointed out, no, we weren't getting selfies with him, we were actually interviewing him, the Prime Minister continued to be dismissive. So I just thought it was just one of those really uncomfortable moments. I jumped to the defence of my former colleagues, all the journos. Prime Minister, I think, has to have a rethink about his relationship with the Australian media because certainly those journalists travelling with him, in particular Catherine Murphy, who wrote a fantastic piece on the weekend, about the Glasgow conference. He has to win them over, Karen. I think um, that's a pretty good grumpy, Corrie. I'm very, very impressed. And um, we're going to move right on for Red Energy to six quick questions. From the sublime to the ridiculous, as my grandmother used to say, Days of Our Lives, Corrie, premiered 56 years ago this week. Who was your favourite? Did you have a favourite Days of Our Lives character? Oh, God, yes. Of course I did. Uh, first of all, you prompted this question, and I was delighted because that, that's a kind of a question I would ask you. So thank you for doing some research <laughs> the program, Caro, on Amazing Date. 56 that's years. That's the way I roll. <laughs> we can obviously say that we have grown up with days of our lives. Caro, you can't go past the matriarch and the patriarch of this family drama, Tom and Alice Horton. You know, they both the actors whose names escape me because they spent all of their careers on Days of Our Lives, so we never saw them anywhere else, so I've forgotten their names. But they were, they held the show together. Tom, the doctor, was such uh, a good person to the community, not such a great dad. But then, of course, the others that that... My friends and I, when we would wag school, were obsessed about the relationship with Doug Williams and Julie, the woman he married three times in the show. <laughs> Look, I, I just never really got into Days of Our Lives. It's just sort of synonymous with soapy so, isn't it? And really, soap opera was such a more healthy way to watch television than reality shows, don't you think? Well, I suppose, but we used to, it was always on during the day and whenever you wagged school... If you'd missed Ivan's midday music, midday movie, and you'd missed the start of that, it was always days of our lives. And the thing about it, you could go kind of six months between wagging school or being sick and being at home, and you just pick up the plot, and it was the same plot. Nothing had happened. It, <laughs> the question to you is name your favourite Aussie soap and your favourite soapy star. Oh, where do I begin? You know, Tom Oliver on number 96, um, Belinda Giblin on Skyways, um, anyone on The Young Doctors and all the times I went to Bunnies and took it from there. Remember whenever anything was wrong, let's just go to Bunnies and take it from there. <laughs> that was their local pub. I wish I had a Bunnies. But no, my favourite Aussie soap was The Restless Years. I loved The Restless Years and I loved Victoria Nichols who played Raylene. Remember Rails on The Restless Years? I do. I wasn't so into that. My big one, I know you haven't asked me, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> Cousins on Bellwood. I mean, Bellwood was my favourite on the ABC. And Robin yeah, Ramp played Charlie Cousins. And when I was about 16 or 17, I became involved in an amateur theatre group in Bentley. Don't ask. But we uh, 
we worked toward um, there was a short play competition in Kyneton memory and we took our play up to Kyneton and the judge, there are about 10 amateur companies, was the longest of my life sitting through all this crap. But the judge was Robin Ramsey. So afterwards, wow. uh, I think we came third or something. But um, afterwards, I, I went up to him and I said, oh, I remember you from Bellbird. You were Charlie Cousins. And he just sneered at me and went, yes. Wait. Oh, Corey, that's a bit disappointing. I remember his, his, I remember him as Pontius Pilate in Jesus Christ Superstar, one of the a life-changing musical for me, which I went to as a very young teenager with my parents. But, um, no, I, I like Bill Bird, but that was a bit highbrow for me. No, restless years for me, Corey. Um, now, with Jemima, I, I'm, and I think we need to explore further your amateur <laughs> theatre days, by the way. That's something, um, a side of you I didn't know, and I thought I knew most sides. Fascinating. Um, maybe next week we can explore that. Uh, with the Bentley players, I don't think so. <laughs> the Bentley players. Was Jemima Khan right to walk away from the Netflix series of Crown because of the respectful, disrespectful way they treated her friend Diana, Corrie? Well, I'm going to answer the question with a question, Caro. What was Jemima Khan doing there, working on the Netflix series being paid, I presume, because she is actually a screenwriter and a producer. What was she doing there being the advisor on Diana? What sort of a friend is that? Imagine if I died and you said, you know, 20 years later, oh, there's an opportunity to make a buck. I'll join the production of The Crown and talk about coffee. Well, from what we've seen so far, I think Diana is portrayed fairly sympathetically, certainly in the previous series, in Series 5. Um, and, you know, I think there's been a backlash from the friends of Prince Charles and Camilla Parker-Bowles about the way they've been treated. Um, so I don't know what happens in this series. The plot thickens more, though, Corrie, because did you know that Jemima Khan was going out with Peter Morgan or used to go out with Peter Morgan, the creator of the show? I did not know that, and he hired yes. 2019 to work on this fifth series. And now they've broken up. Sorry, is this is this five or six coming up? Uh, oh, well, no, you, I can't remember. Maybe it is. Anyway, whichever one it is, it's the last one, which is a great pity. Um, and then, so Jemima Khan said that, you know, she was happy to help with the script, but not anymore because um, of what the way they've, she's not sure about the way they've treated Diana in this particular last series. Um, but the show itself have put out a thing saying, we love Jemima. She's been a, you know, advisor to us from the last series as well and sort of implied that she was never a script writer for them anyway. And, sort of implied that she didn't really have that much of a role in anyway. So I'm not sure we've really got to the bottom of this story, Corrie. And she no, I should say she no longer goes out with Peter Morgan. They broke up earlier this year. Oh, that is an amazing fact. I did not know that. Well done. You get the Fact of the Day Award. Hey, Corrie, <laughs> my question to you is about uh, my president at Hawthorne, Jeff Kennett. Has he read The Room finally? Well, I think he has. I mean, I think he's realised that um, the way, the shambolic way with which he treated Alistair Clarkson's departure or the so-called succession plan with Alistair Clarkson was never going to fly. Um, and I think now when you hear his challenges talking about getting rid of pokies, talking about, you know, the problematic relationship or not problematic, but what's going to happen with Tasmania, um, both Ian Silk 
and Andrew Gowers are both quite serious about challenging. And I think the board, which has not really shown any muscle at all in challenging Jeff, I'm sorry, but he came along at the right time both times for Hawthorne, but he stayed too long on this occasion and he's made some terrible errors over this particular presidency. And I think he's realising that it could get ugly, so he's got in first and actually talked, at this time anyway, talked about finding a successor. Whether or not he tries to dupe the blokes who want to overthrow him, well, that's going to be absolutely fascinating. But his days are well and truly numbered. And I'm sure, Corey, a lot more is going to come out about what actually went on behind the scenes of the Alistair Clarkson handover to Sam Mitchell that didn't happen and Jeff Kennett's role in all of that. And um, I'm determined to get to the bottom of it. Now, Corrie, what was this week's terrific casting decision? Oh, Caro, you're going to love this. So, you know, Sarah Lancashire, the British actress who plays our Carol yes. in Last yes, Nico yes. in Halifax. Yes. And she's in, um, is it Happy Valley as well? That, oh, that rather grim. She's, her star has really been on the scent in the last five years, I guess. She is currently playing Julia Child in a new eight-part documentary drama on the life of the famous American chef, Julia Child. And wow. if you look at the, at the photographs that they've released midway through production, and she's got the dark brown curly wheel. They are peas in a pod. Wow, that is big news. I can't wait. Is, is this going, is it in production now? It's in production now. HBO is bringing it out. So I'm not sure which uh, digital platform it will be on. But they are wrapping it up now, I understand. And uh, those who have seen the rushes or whatever they're called in the film will say that she's done a remarkable job and they are saying that this is going to be her entree into cracking you know cracking the american market which so far she hasn't really done i don't think the americans would would really enjoy last tango in halifax i can't see that as being part of their thing oh what a great show it is and what a great actor she is that's big news i'm very happy to hear that yeah, I thought you might. I can't wait for that. I love it when I have something that you don't know about me in the screen world. I always feel like I've, I don't know, I'm just glowing in my greatness there. Hey, Carol, what's this week's Glowing story? or gloating, Corey? Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, it must be the sound waves because I did say glowing, but if you want to think I said gloating, that's okay. Hey, what's the latest Dutch fact? Well, I, I noticed something. It took me a few weeks to pick up on this, Corrie, but I pointed out to uh, Rose the other day that at this yoga class I go to, I said, look, it only occurred to me um, after about five classes, I've joined a yoga club, as you know, that all the instructors speak to us in English. And pretty much everywhere I go, people speak in English. You really don't have to, it sounds terrible, but there are, I'm sure, well, I know that when you go outside Amsterdam, it changes a little bit, although not in the cities like The Hague and The Hague, et cetera. But um, I said to Rosa, you know, even the yoga instructors speak Dutch and, you know, she said that pretty much all exercise classes, that, sorry, they speak English. And um, when you read up on this, I mean, English became the second language of the Netherlands um, oh, back in the 1980s, I think. But... Amsterdam is a new London. So many businesses are moving here because of Brexit. Now, London is clearly still the financial capital of Europe. And 
way ahead. But in areas of finance, medicine, um, transport and logistics, um, cultural, uh, tech, all these businesses are moving to Amsterdam because, um, obviously because of the Euro situation. And as a result, I mean, there was a lot of English spoken here anyway, but it's only more so. And it's become a real breeding ground for these people. And it's also pricing local Dutch out of the market. I mean, to live inside the ring, which is a very small area of the Netherlands, which is inside the Amsterdam ring, um, so many Dutch people just can't afford to live here anymore. And it is full of Engl- well, British and obviously people from all over, over Europe, a lot of Australians. But, um, yeah, Amsterdam is a new London is my Dutch fact of the week. Well, that is interesting. Uh, we saw that happen with Copenhagen a few years ago, remember? And Brussels kind of lost its crown as the the capital for international trading in Europe. And, and people were particularly new businesses, digital and environmental, they were all moving to Copenhagen. So that's really interesting. Well, and and as I told you um, when we had a little offbeat chat the, um, earlier today for me last night for you, um, in terms of climate change, the local coffee shop, one of our local coffee shops, is giving away free coffees and not just, you know, your regular percolated coffee, a proper flat white, which is what you order here, Corrie, to get the two shots. A pro- if you order it with oat milk, although you're not allowed to call it oat milk, you've got to call it oat, an oat flat white, or an oat latte because the dairy industry is kicked back here and they're sick of people referring to oat as oat milk because they say it's not milk. It has to have cow product in it to be called milk. But if you want to get a free coffee, you can get a free coffee every single day for all of this week. Where do you see coffee shops give away free lattes anywhere else in the world? And so I imagine you're having your oat, two shots, whatever, in a... uh in an eco-friendly cup, or do you have a recycled cup? Is that a thing to Well, I've, I've been a bit slack with the old keep cup because when you're riding a bike everywhere, um, they're not. Re- I suppose I could put it in my backpack. Yeah, I have to. I have to come back to you on that one, Corey. Um, but I'm sure the cups I use at this place are more eco-friendly than the ones I use in Australia. So, yes, um, good point. Touche. Well, um, you can bring us all back uh, one for Christmas. That would be really nice. to, And it would be nice to see you in person. But this is second best. And Potties, as Cara said earlier at the top of the show, we are very apologetic for the poor sound quality. But look, at least we're still chatting and at least you're still tuning in. So we'll get there in the end. And we promise that 2022 will be a clearer, happy year for us. Thank you, everyone. And don't forget to keep in touch with us. We love receiving your feedback instagram account is don't shoot pod we'd love to have your comments there and of course there's facebook and we tweet as well and then there is feedback at don't shoot want to send us an email and carol what do we say Corey, we say don't shoot the messenger this podcast is proudly supported by red energy most satisfied customers 11 years in a row isn't it time you called red energy on 131 806 and prince wine store bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world